First part of chapter 7 of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Patriotism, part 1. The creative social environment, since it eludes sense, must be represented symbolically. The mythical social idea most potent over practical minds is perhaps the idea of country. When a tribe enlarged and domiciled has become a state, much social feeling that was before evoked by things visible loses its sensuous object. Yet each man remains no less dependent than formerly on his nation. Although less swayed by its visible presence and example, he is no less concerned, materially or ideally, in the fortunes of the community. If a sense for social relations is to endure, some symbol must take the place of the moving crowd, the visible stronghold, and the outspread fields and orchards that once made up his country. Some intellectual figment must arise to focus political interest. No longer confined to the crops and the priest's medicinal auguries, it is altogether impossible that the individual should have a discursive and adequate knowledge of statecraft and economy. Whatever idea, then, he frames to represent his undistinguished political relations becomes the center of his patriotism. When intelligence is not keen, this idea may remain sensuous. The visible instruments of social life, chieftains, armies, monuments, the dialect and dress of the district, with all customs and pleasures traditional there, these are what a sensuous man may understand by his country. Bereft of these sensations, he would feel lost and incapable. The habits formed in that environment would be galled by any other. This fondness for home, this dread of change and exile, is all the love of country he knows. If by chance, without too much added thought, he could rise to a certain poetic sentiment, he might feel attachment also to the landscape, to the memorable spots and aspects of his native land. These objects, which rhetoric calls sacred, might really have a certain sanctity for him. A wave of pious emotion might run over him at the sight of them, a pang when in absence they were recalled. These very things, however, like the man who prizes them, are dependent on a much larger system. And if patriotism is to embrace ideally what really produces human well-being, it should extend over a wider field and to less picturable objects. Ambiguous Limits of a Native Country, Geographical and Moral To define one's country is not so simple a matter as it may seem. The habitat of a man's youth, to which actual associations may bind him, is hardly his country until he has conceived the political and historical forces that include that habitat in their sphere of influence and have determined its familiar institutions. Such forces are numerous and their spheres include one another like concentric rings. France, for instance, is an uncommonly distinct and self-conscious nation with a long historic identity and a compact territory. Yet what is the France a Frenchman is to think of and love? Paris itself has various quarters and moral climates, one of which may well be loved while another is detested. The provinces have customs, temperaments, political ideals, and even languages of their own. Is Alsace-Lorraine beyond the pale of French patriotism? And if not, why utterly exclude French-speaking Switzerland, the Chanel Islands, Belgium, or Quebec? Or is a Frenchman rather to love the colonies by way of compensation? Is an Algerian Moor or a native of Tonquin his true fellow citizen? Is Tahiti a part of his country? The truth is, if we look at the heart of the matter, a Protestant born in Paris is less a Frenchman than is a Catholic born in Geneva. If we pass from geography to institutions, the same vagueness exists. France to one man represents the revolution, to another the empire, to a third the church, and the vestiges of an ancient regime. Furthermore, 
how far into the past is patriotism to look? Is Charlemagne one of the glories of French history? Is it Julius Caesar or Vercingetorix that is to warm the patriotic heart? Want of reflection and a blind subservience to the colors of the map has led some historians to call Roman victories defeats suffered by their country, even when that country is essentially so Roman, for instance, as Spain. With as good reason might a Sicilian or a Florentine chafe under the Latin conquest, or an American blush at the invasion of his country by the Pilgrim Fathers. Indeed, even geographically, the limits of the very heart of a man's country are often ambiguous. Was Alexander's country Macedon or Greece? Was General Lee's the United States or Virginia? The ancients defined their country from within outward. Its heart was the city and its limits those of that city's dominion or affinities. Moderns generally define their country rather stupidly by its administrative frontiers. And yet, an Austrian would have some difficulty in applying even this conventional criterion. Sentimental and Political Patriotism the object of patriotism is in truth something ideal, a moral entity definable only by the ties which a man's imagination and reason can at any moment recognize. If he has insight and depth of feeling, he will perceive that what deserves his loyalty is the entire civilization to which he owes his spiritual life and into which that life will presently flow back with whatever new elements he may have added. Patriotism accordingly has two aspects. It is partly sentiment by which it looks back upon the sources of culture and partly policy or allegiance to those ideals which, being suggested by what has already been attained, animate the better organs of society and demand further embodiment. To love one's country, unless that love is quite blind and lazy, must involve a distinction between the country's actual condition and its inherent ideal. And this distinction, in turn, involves a demand for changes and for effort. Party allegiance is a true form of patriotism, for a party, at least in its intent, is an association of persons advocating the same policy. Every thoughtful man must advocate some policy, and unless he has the misfortune to stand quite alone in his conception of public welfare, he will seek to carry out that policy by the aid of such other persons as advocate it also. The Earth and the Race The First Objects of Rational Loyalty the springs of culture, which retrospective patriotism regards, go back in the last instance to cosmic forces. The necessity that marshals the stars makes possible the world men live in, and is the first general and lawgiver to every nation. The Earth's geography, its inexorable climates with their flora and fauna, make a playground for the human will, which should be well surveyed by any statesman who wishes to judge and act, not fantastically, but with reference to the real situation. Geography is the most enlightening science. In describing the habitat of man, it largely explains his history. Animal battles give the right and only key to human conflicts, for the superadded rational element in man is not partisan, but on the contrary, insinuates into his economy the novel principle of justice and peace. As this leaven, however, can mingle only with elements predisposed to receive it, the basis of reason itself, insofar as it attains expression, must be sought in the natural world. The fortunes of the human family among the animals thus come to concern reason and to be the background of progress. Within humanity, the next sphere of interest for a patriot is the race from which he is descended. With its traditional languages and religions, blood is the ground of character and intelligence. The fruits of civilization may, indeed, be transmitted from one race to another, and consequently, 
a certain artificial homogeneity may be secured amongst different nations yet unless continual intermarriage takes place each race will soon recast and vitiate the common inheritance the fall of the roman empire offered such a spectacle when various types of barbarism with more or less classic veneer re-established themselves everywhere perhaps modern cosmopolitanism if not maintained by commerce or by permanent conquest may break apart in the same way and yield to local civilizations no less diverse than christendom and islam race when distinct the greatest of distinctions community of race is a far deeper bond than community of language education or government where one political system dominates various races it forces their common culture to be merely external this is perhaps the secret of that strange recrudescence of national feeling apart often from political divisions which has closely followed the french revolution and the industrial era the more two different peoples grow alike in externals the more conscious and jealous they become of diversity in their souls and where individuals are too insignificant to preserve any personality or distinction of their own they flock together into little intentional societies and factious groups in the hope of giving their imagination in its extremity some little food and comfort private nationalities and private religions are luxuries at such a time in considerable demand the future may possibly see in the occident that divorce between administrative and ideal groups which is familiar in the orient so that no matter what government and with utter cosmopolitanism in industry and science each race may guard its own poetry religion and manners such traditions however would always be survivals or revivals rather than genuine expressions of life because mind must either represent nature and the conditions of action or else be content to persist precariously and without a function like a sort of ghost pure races may be morally sterile some races are obviously superior to others a more thorough adjustment to the conditions of existence has given their spirit victory scope and a relative stability it is therefore of the greatest importance not to obscure the superiority by intermarriage with inferior stock and thus nullify the progress made by a painful evolution and a prolonged sifting of souls reason protests as much as instinct against any fusion for instance of white and black peoples mixture is in itself no evil if the two nations being approximately equal but having complementary gifts can modify them without ultimate loss and possibly to advantage indeed the so-called pure races since their purity has gone with isolation and inexperience have borne comparatively little spiritual fruit large contact and concentrated living bring out native genius but mixture with an inferior stock can only tend to obliterate it the jews the greeks the romans the english were never so great as when they confronted other nations reacting against them and at the same time perhaps adopting their culture but this greatness fails inwardly whenever contact leads to amalgamation there is something unmistakably illiberal almost superstitious in standing on race for its own sake as if origins and not results were of moral value it matters nothing what blood a man has if he has the right spirit and if there is some ground for identifying the two since monkeys however educated are monkeys still it is only when blood means character and capacity and is tested by them that it becomes important nor is it unjust to level the individual in his political and moral status with the race to which he belongs if this race holds an approved position individual gifts and good intentions have little efficacy in the body politic if they can neither express a great tradition nor can avail to find one and this tradition as religion shows will falsify individual insights so soon as they are launched into the public medium the common soul will destroy a noble genius in absorbing it 
and therefore to maintain progress a general genius has to be invoked and a general genius means an exceptional and distinct race end of chapter seven part one